It was well rehearsed. It went off without a hitch. It was a, a thing of beauty if you admire robberies. If they were seeing their faces without masks, perhaps they would be shot dead to remove them as witnesses. Of course, even the smartest crooks are not always prudent, because if they were, they wouldn't be crooks. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. The thing about real armed robberies, the big stuff, is that it's not an impulse crime. A lot of planning goes into it, and planning an armed robbery depends on routine. And the message for people who run businesses and banks and things that might be robbed is, if you don't want to be robbed, be very careful about routine. Now, someone at the Armour Guard Company, which of course ferries large amounts of cash around, forgot this important rule back in 1994. Because every Wednesday that year, in 1994, a cash van left the Armour Guard depot at Carrum Downs, which is a suburb uh, in the far south east of Melbourne, uh, near the bay. And that cash van would travel into the city via the freeway, the southeastern freeway. It would trundle into Collins Street to the Reserve Bank, and there it would be loaded full of millions of dollars of cash, and it would turn around and leave the city, go out the freeway again, and back to the southeastern suburbs to deliver the cash to the various places that needed the cash. And for some reason, this happened at the same time, roughly, every Wednesday for quite a while, sufficiently often that some people started to take notice. And this was not just anybody. As I understand it, the person that first took notice of this is a man that we will call Sandy. We'll talk about him more later on. Now, Sandy was pretty well a career crook. He was born in Scotland. He'd come out as a little boy for the terrible crime of having parents that didn't want him anymore and was brought up in boys' homes and then became, as so many boys' home boys did, he became a criminal by osmosis. And this fellow, Sandy, was observant, sharp, intelligent, and he had noticed that this cash van kept going down Brunton Avenue, past the MCG, into the city, and then back out Brunton Avenue, onto the Punt Road, down to the freeway and turning left into the access lane, right next to the Yarra River and up onto the freeway, right near the Nilex clock at the corner of Richmond known as Cremorne. And so he would watch it and take notice. He would watch how fast the van went, roughly what time of day, of course, and he passed on the knowledge to a very heavy crew of people that he was associated with. I think he'd met one of them in jail. Now, this crew were very dangerous men. They hadn't had a lot of jail time, most of them, but they were very adroit armed robbers and, in fact, offenders of of all sorts. They were generally physical specimens. They all shared an interest in the martial arts, boxing and karate and all those sort of things. And they were fitness fanatics. They were disciplined. They were tough. They were sober. 
and they generally knew what they were doing. They exuded the sort of charisma and sense of purpose that you might associate with SAS soldiers or those sort of people, commandos. And our mate Sandy, he started to wait at the MCG uh, in a car park at the MCG in a little old Bedford truck, like a glorified van, just a little two-ton truck, which had some tool lockers on the back, which were tall enough that it would block out anybody's view of what was behind the truck if you were in front of the truck. But it wasn't a really big vehicle. It was small enough to look just like some other tradesman vehicle. And he would park it in this car park next to the MCG. And on the day in question, when everything was set up, when the cash van went past, he had his motor going and he pulled straight into Brunton Avenue behind it. And he followed it through the lights onto Punt Road and headed south down Punt Road towards the freeway. And that was the plan. However, plans can go wrong. And this one almost did because as he was following in his very slow vehicle that didn't accelerate very well, a cheeky motorist pulled out of a service station in Punt Road and pulled into the gap between the cash van, the armor guard van, and the little Bedford truck driven by Sandy. Sandy was very upset about this because he needed to be directly behind the van in order to pull off the robbery that was ahead. And so what he did was pull out into the next lane, go up beside the car of the uh, unsuspecting motorist, and then cut off that motorist with his truck and get behind the van again. And luckily, he was able to do that without actually ramming the motorist, which would have led to problems and probably would have spoilt the whole robbery attempt. So the plan unfolds. The cash van turns into the access lane right next to the Yarra River. The access lane leads up onto the freeway past the Nilex clock buildings and the silos there. As they did that, he notices that a police car turns in front of the cash van and he thinks, oh, this is not good. But there is a road crew working on the road on the access lane and one of the workers wearing a hard hat steps up and waves the police car through and the police car speeds off up onto the freeway and disappears. And then that road worker with the hard hat stops the cash van with his hand and the stop sign. He had one of those signs that you turn from slow around to stop and he turned it to stop. The cash van stops and behind the cash van is the Bedford truck with a Sandy at the wheel and behind the truck is just a queue of normal motorists who can't actually see what's happening because the truck obscures their view. And this is all part of the cunning plan because What's happening here is that the road crew is in fact a fake road crew. It's a pop-up road crew of highly skilled and disciplined and rehearsed armed robbers. And these men are wearing you know, sunglasses, they're wearing hard hats, they're wearing overalls so they all look a bit similar. They weren't masked because that would be a giveaway. It's conceivable, I suspect, that they had false moustaches or moustaches that they could shave off, that sort of thing. It's conceivable they had some other forms of disguise. It makes sense that they might have made some attempts to disguise their identity a little. The cash van is sitting there. 
the man with the sign is standing there looking bored. The other workers start up a concrete cutting saw at that precise moment. As most of us know, they make a lot of noise. They drop the cutting wheel into the bitumen and make a hell of a racket, and it kicks up a lot of smoke and dust. And, of course, this is the sort of thing that makes most of us just wind up our car windows and turn up the car radio and sit it out, and it is an excellent distraction. Now, while this is happening, in the cash van we have three armour guard employees, three guards. By their nature, they are more on their guard when they're doing cash pickups and cash deliveries because that is the point at which they would normally imagine they are most vulnerable. They are probably, uh, especially after some months or years on the job, not really expecting to be pulled up in mid-trip. And so they're just sitting there bored in the van when suddenly something happens. Two of the workers have approached the back of the cash van. They have a key. Their key unlocks the external lock on the cash van. Now, this is, pardon the uh, pun, the key to the whole exercise. Somehow, they have a duplicate key which will open the lock on the back of the armour guard van. So clearly, this gang has at least one inside man or inside knowledge or something. They must have inside knowledge either from armour guard or from a locksmith somewhere. Regardless of how they've got it, They've got it. They flick open the lock, they whip open the rear door and a man jumps in the back with a pistol and puts it straight to the head of the guard sitting in the back of the van who is extremely surprised. The van has uh, sort of open access, I think, to the front seats. So that robber and then a couple of his mates are able to overpower the guards very simply by putting guns to their head. They force them into the back of the van They get them to lie on the floor. They put plastic bags, uh, garbage bags over their heads and assure them that they've got holes in them so they won't suffocate. They handcuff their hands behind their backs. They're so well rehearsed and uh, so polished that they were even cracking jokes. They had to remove the driver's wristwatch because it was preventing the handcuffs going on and the robber said, don't worry, I'm not a thief. And then another one of them said, don't worry about these handcuffs. We've had them on plenty of times. And so they were cracking jokes with these guards who, I have to say, were still fairly terrified. And they were terrified because they saw the robbers' faces. And it seemed to them, naturally, that if they were seeing their faces without masks, perhaps they would be shot dead to remove them as witnesses, which is a very valid thought. If you are in the middle of an armed robbery, it would be a good idea to close your eyes and say, I can't see you. Anyway, one of the robbers just jumps into the driver's seat of the cash van. His mate outside has put the sign down and packed up the road workers' gear, a couple of signs, a couple of shovels, and the cutting equipment have all gone into a Toyota van that's sitting there. They've packed it all away. The uh, Robert drives the cash van up along and left into Cremorne Street, heads up about 100 metres or whatever, then turns right into Belmain Street, down past the Cherry Tree Hotel, which we've discussed in other podcasts. It was a hotbed of crime in the bad old days. And they've gone under the railway line, which many people will know there, and 
along a little bit further west and then turned right into Walnut Street, one of the small streets in a semi-industrial warehouse area of that part of Richmond. This is just 500 metres from the robbery scene. The Bedford truck driven by Sandy and the Toyota van follow them. They transfer the cash out of the armor guard van and into the other vehicles, and then they vanish. The whole robbery took less than eight minutes from start to finish. It was well rehearsed. It went off without a hitch. It was a a thing of beauty if you admire robberies. It also was terrifying for the three guards who undoubtedly thought that they might die. The guards are left, of course, trussed up in the van with the bags over their heads. They start to yell and kick and struggle to make a noise. A passerby hears them yelling, opens the door, sees what's happened. Someone grabs a set of bolt cutters from a nearby engineer's workshop or garage and cut the handcuffs off, and then the alarm is raised. By this time, of course, it's, you know, it might be 15 or 20 minutes since the robbery started. Plenty of time, apparently, for the robbers to vanish. Now, as far as we know, they went to somewhere not far away, perhaps in Abbotsford or Collingwood or somewhere the next suburb over, something like that. And they there whacked up the money, probably organised to get rid of the vehicles that they had and the concrete cutter and all that stuff because none of that was ever found. There was a diversion tactic or what might be a diversion tactic. Someone later telephoned the police to say they'd seen some men putting packages into a Datsun car several blocks away in Mary Street in Richmond. Now, that might be true, but it might have also been a throw-off just to get the police chasing a Datsun that was irrelevant to the case. It's hard to know, but it's conceivable there was a Datsun and they were moving some money that early in the piece. It's hard to know. There was also a report that one of the gang got into a light-coloured sedan, perhaps a Camira or similar small car like that. If so, it was never found. Neither was the Datsun. Neither was the Bedford truck driven by Sandy. Neither was the Toyota van that the fake workers used to carry all their gear. And so it was even hard to tell for the police how many robbers had taken part. One reason for this is that at least one key player was off the stage. This man, a well-known fancier of dangerous dogs, I might say, Um, he's well-known to police and uh, members of the underworld, and um, I think we could say that he has a country estate probably within an hour or an hour and a half of Melbourne. And on that country estate, he has many, many dangerous dogs, which he tends to have tied up all around his big garden, around his big house, so that if anyone gets within a of the house, the dogs all start to bark and snarl and snap and they are tied sufficiently close together that it would be very hard for any stranger to get in and out of the garden and up to the house. This is how careful this man is. It is said that that man was lurking on the riverbanks, on the Yarra banks, 
watching the scene unfold and that he was one of the masterminds and that he was in on the whole thing and in on the split up of the cash. I understand that this happened in a nearby garage, as I said, maybe in Abbotsford. The police found almost nothing except the cheap handcuffs, which were fairly generic and could have come from almost anywhere, the witch's hats, similarly pretty generic, and a broom, pretty well impossible to trace to a source. They don't find the vehicles, they don't find guns, they don't find the concrete cutter, they don't find any of the clothing. One thing the robbers did leave was the replica security key to the van, a tantalising clue which suggests they had inside help, of course. What we don't know is whether that was from an Armaguard employee or more likely, I think, someone in the locksmith business. I think the police have a rough idea that there were people in the locksmith business in inner suburban Melbourne who might have been able to use inside information. So how much did these blokes get? Well, this is 1994. Back in those days, a million dollars was a lot more than it is now. Back in those days, in 1994, a good house in the inner eastern suburbs, such as Canterbury, Camberwell, Hawthorne, could be bought for less than $500,000. There were plenty of houses sold for between 300000 and 500000 in that year in those sort of suburbs. And of course, the further out you went, the more house that sort of money would buy. And that gives us an idea of the purchasing power of the loot. Now, initially, it was put at about $3 million. Now, that was a very rough guesstimate. By that night, by the time the Herald Sun went to print, the figure was put officially at $2.3 million. It's possible that that was not an accurate figure. Perhaps it was used as a throw-off for some reason. It's always good for police and insurers and others to, to know something that only the robbers might know and that the public doesn't know. And so they put out the story at $2.3 million. Interestingly, in later years when this story was updated and referred to as it was periodically, the figure was blown out to about $4 million. Now, why that is is hard to say, but it might be, I suspect, that the real figure was close to $4 million and over time someone just let it slip that it was $4 million. There was no real point in disguising it. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. A consolation for Armaguard and the bank was that the van often held twice as much as was robbed. The Bedford driver, Sandy, had guessed that the van had about $7 million. Now, why he would make that guess 
is hard to know, but it would seem that it was an educated guess that he must have had some sort of inside information because often it did have around the $7 million in it. On this day, it didn't for reasons that we don't know. As it was, each member of the crew probably got the price of a couple of houses. It was enough for prudent and careful people to set themselves up for life. But of course, even the smartest crooks are not always prudent, because if they were, they wouldn't be crooks. They'd scored easy money before, and being crooks, they'd try to do it again. And so now we get to the investigation part of it, the mystery. The police soon decided they had a rough idea who'd done this. The detective leading the investigation, uh, one Ross McKenzie, questioned five men in the first year that he believed were the prime suspects. None of them confessed. Surprise, surprise. There was no identification evidence, and it seemed for once that the armour guard guards had not connived in any way with the robbers. They hadn't been stood over or bribed or got at or blackmailed. Often there is some sort of inside information. Apparently the police are satisfied that in this case there was not, apart, of course, from the issue of the key. The key, as we know, was the key. Whoever had copied the key could unlock the case for the police. The police leaked a story to the media suggesting that the mystery locksmith was a, quote, weak link who was in grave danger. If that locksmith didn't get in first by flipping the bandits, that perhaps the bandits would uh, silence him permanently by killing him. This um, fairly basic ruse didn't work. Uh, the bandits didn't believe that that was the case and uh, no one was hurt. The investigation led detectives towards a particular pocket of the eastern suburbs, not the inner east so much as the about halfway out east, not overly far from, say, Chadston. Now, not everyone in the gang had their origins in one particular housing commission area, but most of them did. The key members of the gang did, according to the police. As teenagers back in the 1970s, They'd run with the Geordie Boys. Now, the Geordie Boys were one of the most feared Sharpie gangs of the 1970s when Melbourne was full of uh, fairly dangerous and violent teenage gangs, those Sharpies, skinheads and all that sort of stuff. The Geordie Boys were one of the heavy gangs out of the eastern suburbs who would go into the city and uh, fight it out with the Broadie Boys and the uh, West Side Sharps and the, the Lebo Tigers and all the rest of them. Police formed the view that graduates of the Geordie Boys had become martial artists and fairly proficient gangsters. The month before the Richmond heist, a man had robbed two security guards of $80,000 and a pistol outside the Hoyt Cinema at the Chadston Shopping Centre. The robber shot the guards and a shopper in the legs at close range, as coolly as if he was a commando playing a part. It was a very deliberate crime. So was another one two months earlier, back in February of 94. A very cool robber, very similar, had held up two security guards outside a Coles supermarket, also 
at Chadston. He pistol-whipped the uh, security guards and took $100,000 and their revolvers. At the time, detectives guessed that the pistols were part of a plan for robbers to tool up for a big payday ahead. The tooling up theory was boosted later by evidence that the fake road gang had done dry runs testing its pop-up roadworks on the freeway access lane at Richmond at the very place where they pulled the robbery. They'd whip in there for, you know, 20 minutes, set up signs, set up their gear, do a bit of fake roadworks, hold up some traffic for a few minutes, let the traffic go again, then pack up and leave just to see that they could do it without really being noticed. It's amazing how invisible you are if you're wearing high-vis vest, a board look and carrying some form of tool. In 1997, three years after the robbery, police planted a story that the Richmond loot, the Richmond heist money, was all used notes with no sequential serial numbers. This wasn't true. The police hoped that the crooks might get careless and start to splash what was in fact traceable cash. The gang must have known that at least 200,000 of the cash was in newly minted notes with known serial numbers because it was all you know, wrapped up and obviously new. Two months after the robbery, a man and three women went into a dozen banks and changed $40,000, which was later traced to the robbery. None of these four were caught, although a Williamstown lawyer would be charged 20 years later with trying to launder some of the stolen cash in a property deal, which was interesting. The identity of those attempting to launder the hot cash promised to be the sort of lever that police needed. Someone close to the gang told me that the male money mule, one of the people who took money into a bank, was a rogue schoolteacher who pulled robberies in his spare time and that one of the women was an intimate associate of his. Now, that rogue teacher later died violently and his woman no longer matched the fairly plump figure on the grainy 1994 bank footage because she'd lost so much weight. The investigators needed a weak link. They needed one of the gang to feel threatened by the rest. But it would take 15 years before the spy they needed came in from the cold. This is our man Sandy, the man who'd sat at the MCG car park, the man driving the Bedford van or Bedford truck. He was the guy who was not a heavy, he wasn't a gunman, he wasn't overly dangerous by the standards of armed robbers and he, although he was one of the smarter ones, he was in other ways the weak link. He was the insider the police needed. And in the end, they got him mainly because he'd been an outsider most of his life. Now, this guy, we call him Sandy, but his real name was Alex. He was born and bred in Glasgow in Scotland. His father was a travelling salesman called Alan McLean or McLean, who'd bolted, leaving his mother, Dorothy, with two little boys. She had a little boy, John, and little boy, Alexander, Alex, alias Sandy, and she put them in an orphanage, as people used to do in those days, near Glasgow, when they were just little tiny kids. 
This was so that she would have a chance to remarry somebody else, and uh, to do that, she abandoned her small boys, which does seem very cold-blooded, but those things used to happen in those days, back in in the post-war era, particularly in Britain when things were tough financially. People did things that we find very hard to believe now. Now, the orphanage was set up with the idea of, of, you know, good intentions, settling Scottish orphans in the colonies. But that did not prevent a lot of bad endings, as happened with orphanages. They were bad places for little kids. John, the older brother, stayed in Scotland and was eventually adopted there. But little Alex, when he was nine, was told that he was going for a holiday to Australia. Shipping documents show that he arrived on the ship, the Canberra, in June 1963, aged 10. Little bloke was not adopted out immediately, which was a pity. He was sent to the Presbyterian Boys' Home at Durrangile near Shepparton, later on a prison. I think it still is a prison. And later he was sent to various other homes, including Kilmoney Boys' Home near Sale in Gippsland. He was serving a life sentence for a crime he didn't commit. His crime was to be abandoned by his parents. Now, this young Alex McLean had never really done anything particularly wrong, but he was damaged, he was volatile, he was intelligent, he was often quite charming. And that was why in 1967, a very kind, nice Gippsland family chose to foster him at their caravan park at Meetung, where they were raising their own four children in their very pleasant house. This was a family called the Williams. It was Bert Williams, who was a builder by trade, his wife Ruth Williams, and their um, four kids, three sons and a daughter. And uh, it so happens that I am from Gippsland and I was about the same age as the Williams kids and I knew them slightly and I had visited their place at Meetung as a child and uh, I knew that they ran a caravan park and We, in fact, had sold them a horse that they used as a show horse. And so we knew the Williamses. What we didn't know was that for a while they had fostered this boy. Uh, If I'd ever known it, I'd forgotten. But during the 60s, they fostered this boy, Sandy McLean. The Williamses rather liked Sandy. He was um, an intelligent boy, and they thought that he had a future as a tradesman or sort of a skilled operator. And indeed, they were right. He did turn out to be uh, a skilled operator, but instead of being a locksmith, he turned out to be a safe cracker, a cat burglar, and a con man, which was a bit sad. They liked him, but he was damaged, and he ended up being a problem for them because in an argument with one of the Williams boys, Dallas Williams, he grabbed a bread knife and threatened the bigger boy with it. Now, this was not a great thing if you've got a happy family. You can't really have a boy there that's willing to grab a knife and threaten somebody with it. And so Ruth Williams, kind-hearted woman that she was, drove him back to Kilmaney Boys' home and delivered him back with a very heavy heart. And she said later to me and to her daughter that she cried all the way home from Kilmaney to Meetung, which was a trip of uh, more than an hour. So 
She was very sad about it, but there was really nothing they could do because he was a problem child. He had been shoplifting cigarettes and other things from the local shop in Meetung, and then he would sell them on the school bus. And he had shown that he'd learnt a lot of bad habits in the boys' homes that he found hard to kick. It was a case of survival and survival of the fittest. And as the twiggies bent, the trees shall grow, as the saying goes. And so Sandy McLean stayed in boys' homes, grew up in them, and he never forgot the kindness shown to him by the Williamses. Later, as a young man, he got married and he took his bride to Meetung for a honeymoon and he stayed up there somewhere, but he didn't have the nerve to go and knock on the Williams's door and say, look, I'm going okay. He didn't want to embarrass them or himself, but he went back there because it was, he said, the only time in his life when he'd ever been happy, which is a very sad thing when you think about it. Sandy got his share of good day jobs. One of his jobs was to be a cleaner with the state bank, and he ended up virtually running their entire cleaning arm. He worked from their city headquarters under a false name. He had several false names. One day at work, he strolled down Elizabeth Street to the National Australia Bank branch, robbed it, walked into Meyer's store, hid the loot in a toilet system, and then went back to work at the state bank. When he was counting the cash at home a little bit later, his then wife called a friend interstate and mentioned seeing all this money being counted out on the bed. The friend interstate helpfully called the police, who uh, called the other police in Melbourne who came around and caught Sandy with the cash all bundled up and hidden in the oven. It was a good crime as far as it went, but it ended badly. Too many people talking on the phone. Uh, Sandy had a lot of aliases by this. One of them was Grant Cambridge. He learned from that episode, and as a result of that, he went to jail, and in jail, he met one of the budding heavyweights who would become one of the band of brothers who pulled the Richmond heist all those years later. So as happens... He formed friendships in jail with other crooks that would lead them to pull more crimes, as often happens. Jails, as everyone in the legal system knows, lawyers and judges and others and police know that jails are actually academies for uh, crooks to learn new tricks. It would appear that the, the Richmond heist mob pulled several good jobs, good robberies, there were striking similarities between their jobs. They were well executed. They were widely spaced and they were unsolved. It would appear that in each case they had some sort of inside information. In the Richmond case it was the keys, but in others it was other information. There was a lot of methodical planning, very cool execution, which did lead police to wonder whether they were ex-army guys or that sort of thing. They had an instinct for the theatrical it looked to them, it looked to the police as if they enjoyed playing a part, playing a role, and that they would dress for the part, act the part, and would get a sort of pleasure in pulling it off, rather like actors do when they pull off a, a role on stage. It's a given that life imitates art in the underworld, and it always has. 
some would note the similarity between the Richmond heist and a 1991 Mickey Rourke caper movie called Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, in which robbers disguised as a road crew rob an armoured car. Well, that would seem to be a fairly basic similarity. Sometimes things that make good plot lines in movies make good plot lines in real life. Our old mate Sandy didn't really trust the other guys in the group because, unlike them, he wasn't a gunman, he didn't relish violence, and he realised that they were more dangerous than he was. He probably realised that they liked him because of his intelligence, his ability to help set a crime up and plan it, but that when push came to shove, that probably he was expendable. Uh, He spent most of his time in the late 1990s in Queensland where he had a house that backed onto some bushland. Those close to him, that uh, is a relative of his, told me that he gave the impression that he had his share of the Richmond loot, many hundreds of thousands of dollars, hidden in a hollow tree or similar, well away from the house. But he also told them, rightly or wrongly, and probably rightly, that rogue police had got wind of this stash and stolen it. Now, if true, that is a case of the bite a bit. It strikes me that it's likely to be true that if uh, certain police in Victoria got to hear about who was who in the zoo, that that information might leak slowly to others who would might leak it to coppers interstate and that they might go and uh, stand over the crook or watch him and uh, use surveillance techniques to work out where the money was, get it. And, of course, it's the perfect target because the crooks can't actually report them. Sandy McLean had earned early the code of silence and he knew that he wouldn't be giving anybody up because it was too dangerous. In 2008, under a different name, John Hamilton, He was arrested for his part in a complex $150 million mortgage scam, which was plotted in Sydney, but which had victims interstate. Two people named in the fraud were close to a Sydney standover man, Michael McGurk. In fact, they'd met McGurk just hours before he was murdered in late 2009. Uh, Using the name Hamilton, Sandy McLean allegedly sold $2.4 million in the scam which involved him leasing a hotel in Ligon Street in Melbourne. When he was bailed, his lawyer told the court that he feared for his life. That he was bailed at all was enough to make the underworld suspect that he might be trading information with the police. Whether that's true or not, those sort of perceptions can be fatal. And when Sandy retreated to Melbourne to stay with one of his old colleagues from the robbery gang, he sensed that something had changed, that there was a coolness in the atmosphere. His son later told me this story. We'll call the uh, the tough guy here the Iceman. The Iceman told his own daughters, his daughters to stay with friends overnight. He then backed a utility into his driveway, into his house out in the eastern suburbs. On the back of the utility was a huge cardboard box that had once contained gym equipment. 
This cardboard box was the size and shape of a coffin. It so happens. It was the right size and shape that you could put a person in it or a body in it. Now, Sandy McLean's survival instincts were very high. He had been, you know, put in a boy's home as a tiny little boy and sent out to Australia at the age of nine. So when his host asked him to help by doing a bit of work around the place in the backyard of the house, he realised that he was being manoeuvred into a blind spot in the backyard where the neighbours could not see from their double-storey houses next door. And when the Iceman, his host, came outside with plastic bags wrapped around his hands, pretending he wanted to pick some pomegranates from a tree in the backyard, Sandy hurried out of the blind corner. He was making plans to get out of there. He got out of there fast. His first move was to stay with an ex-wife on the other side of the city, but that didn't last. He could run, but he couldn't hide. His former associates were looking for him. His options narrowed, so he called the police, who made arrangements to keep him safe. He made detailed statements over a few months about who was responsible for unsolved crimes going back more than two decades. And when this work was done, it seemed wise for Sandy, by this time a man in early middle age, to go home to Scotland. Sadly, it didn't bring him any peace. His mother had died after making it clear she wanted nothing to do with her sons. Sandy's lost and found brother John found him hanging in his Glasgow flat one cold December day. The Scottish police could not find any suspicious circumstances. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.